This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Staffel Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And today we are once again thrilled to be joined by the fabulous, fantastic Bridget Todd. Welcome, Bridget. We're always so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be back here. And happy happy late Thanksgiving. Yes, to you too. How how are how have things been going for you, Bridget? Things have been good. Um yeah, I we're getting into the holidays, which as a Grinch <laughs> is always <laughs> a little tough, but Things are good. Annie, I have to ask you, I heard that you had COVID. How are you feeling? <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, I feel I feel totally fine. It was not that bad at all. Thanks to, I've got my boosters, I got my vaccine, so it was not bad at all. And uh, yeah, I was just talking about how it's been so long since I've been sick that it was interesting to see my, like what I view as a very sad reaction of, oh, I can eat soup and like sit in bed for a little bit. I think I should be able to do those things without getting COVID. But anyway, I'm fine. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> it's the best part of being about being sick is like you can just binge bad TV with no guilt, never leave yeah. your bed, be under 15 blankets and just yes. have that be your life for a while. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> I feel so I feel so strange admitting it, but it is true. It was like, oh, I can finally do these things that I just want to do. But yeah, yeah, it was all good. And it was really funny because I quarantine. Samantha and I are big, like, we don't go anywhere during the pandemic. So I really, I was like, oh, this is easy. I don't really have to change my routine at all. It doesn't feel like a big switch up. <laughs> that is yeah. so sad. Like the only th- when I I had, when I had COVID, the only big change was like I instead of when I ordered delivery, instead of 
greeting them at the door. I just had them leave it. And then I would wait yep. behind the door because I could, I could sense when they dropped it off. And then I would like quickly open the door and like grab it. <laughs> like some kind of a like troll yeah. coming out of her lair. Like I'm going to grab this and run back upstairs. <laughs> yes. Same, same. Uh, yeah, yeah. The Oh, gosh. I'm so glad you, you, you're here and that you can make time for it because the holidays are, are very stressful. And I know Samantha is also somebody who doesn't really like them. I, I, I hate it. I don't like mind it. I like lights. I think that's my big thing. I like lights, but I have lights all <laughs> I the like time. Those I like lights. <laughs> I do. <laughs> that's amazing. That's my favorite thing. Uh, that's amazing. I'm trying yes. to I'm trying to change it up a little bit. I was like, maybe I'll actually get an actual Christmas tree. Maybe I'll do some decorating and all of that. But then I went to Target yesterday and looked around and got the immediate sinking of like, oh, I hate the holidays. So I was like, I'm getting sad. I'm walking away. Like, <laughs> that's kind of the way I felt. And of course, I don't. I, I have a house, but I don't have a fireplace. So I feel like with that missing, you like don't have that mantle to put things on, which is really ridiculous of a conversation as a reason of like, this is why I don't want to decorate my house or whatever or whatnot. But yeah, it just like I walked in, it was overwhelming and I was like, mm, yeah, I'm done. I'm okay. So I did try for like two <laughs> seconds. You know, <laughs> perfect. Thank you. <laughs> if it's not for you, it's not for you. There's nothing wrong with it. And also, Okay, so Bridget, Samantha and I, the topic Ooh. you brought today, are very, we're very excited you brought it because mm-hmm. we have a lot of questions, but also we've been meaning to talk about it, but we were hopeful that you would talk about it oh, because yes. <laughs> I feel like you have a lot more knowledge and expertise in this arena. So I'm, I'm, so, I'm so excited that this is what we're talking about today. Uh, which is Twitter. <laughs> yeah, of and you course. know what? The last time you were on, we actually talked about the fact that it was the beginning of the end, kind of had them that moment, because at that moment we knew that Elon Musk was coming on. And we're like, oh no, here we go. Uh, <laughs> so definitely, as we were watching this, I feel like it was just yesterday that we mentioned this. So yeah. I'm sure you got so much more in-depth information from the beginning of to today. Yeah, I, I I mean, it's it's so weird. And just to level set, like, we, it does feel like we're in a little bit of unprecedented waters. You know, I have a lot of expertise when it comes to technology and platforms and how they run and how they're moderated. But this has never really happened before. Since I have been working in, in the internet spaces, I have never seen a billionaire buy one of our largest digital communications platforms and, like, change the culture pretty much single-handedly overnight. So... I am going to try to bring whatever expertise I have and answer whatever questions folks have. But I don't know a lot because this is just like a very new, weird experience. I am learning right alongside all of y'all and figuring out what's happening um, in real time. So it's, it's kind of exciting, kind of interesting, but also TBD. <laughs> yeah, which I guess we should say we're recording this on November 28th. Because things are changing rapidly. <laughs> things are changing rapidly. A lot has happened, as you said, Samantha, since Elon Musk came on board. So, yeah, we'll see. I think there's a lot more to come. Yeah, well, that's a, a great place to start. You know, just the rapid changing of the situation. I initially started putting together an outline a couple of, I think, like last week. And mostly all that stuff that I wrote is now has now been changed. So hopefully this will be 
not totally out of out of date by the time folks hear it. Um, I have to ask before we even start, like, have you sensed that your relationship with Twitter has changed since Elon Musk took over? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Um, because one of the biggest things that I've experienced with Twitter since um, Elon Musk has been um, either kind of a sense of um, uncertainty or confusion where people will contact me and be like, I'm not sure... I'm not sure what's going on, so you can find me on this other social platform or whatever. And then I have had a, several experiences where I went to check on um, something somebody uh, somebody on Twitter is doing that I follow, and their account is not there anymore, or it's deactivated. And kind of just a general, like, I'm not sure if this is coming from who I think this is coming from, I guess. Like, um, a, like a loss of trust. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what is going on and if I can trust anything that is happening. Right. I mean, essentially, I think that's the biggest thing is I don't know if this is a real account to someone at all. The amount of ads I've been getting have gotten up. It's the same three ads, but I'm like, oh my God, it is constantly there, which we all know why. But... And I mean, like, because they're losing so much money. But um, I think one of the big things is, like, I will see parody accounts, which, because of the verification system, has completely gone out the window, that I don't know if it's real. I think there was one at one point that I was like, oh, that that one is real. Oh, that's real? Ooh, like, that's kind of one of those moments. As well as the amount of misinformation has grown to me. At least I knew if it was coming from this specific account or type of account, what was happening. Now I don't know. I'm like, okay, wait, did that actually happen? And I don't know anymore if it's real or not. Like, so many things that were aimed specifically at Elon Musk. I'm like, is that is that real? Is that really happening? Did he do these things? Or are people saying this in order to fear monger or make it even bigger? And then he, he comes back and saying, just kidding, that didn't happen. Like, I don't I don't know at this point who to trust and who not to trust. Of course, on our Stuff Mom Never Told You account, we the followers just dropped because so many people have left. I, I'm assuming maybe they just all were bots. <laughs> I don't know. But, like, the amount of people that had left has, like, increased in, in the fact that that's uh, impacted our numbers for a while. Not that we we don't do too much because I am still fearful of writing anything <laughs> uh, <laughs> on any mm-hmm. of the social media accounts at all. But it's interesting to see how that f- is fluctuating as well. Uh, the people who I, again, trusted losing their verification because they didn't pay for it. So, therefore, I don't know if that's them anymore. There's so much, like, I don't quite know... <laughs> What's reality, what's fake, and then the amount of disinformation and people that I'm trying, like, have been banned or back on that I'm like, oh, God, why? So it's really sad because Twitter has been something that I use to, like, let me know what's going on. It's faster than um, any other news platforms and and seeing, like, the truth of what's actually happening, uh, whether it's uh, information about uh, wrongful deaths or protests around the country or around the world. So there's a lot that I'm like, ah, I'm kind of lost, but also at the same time entertained because it's going in flames. (laughs) Yes. A thousand times yes. So I have seen all all the things that y'all have seen and felt and sensed. I have also seen and felt and sensed. And for folks listening, even if you're someone who doesn't use Twitter, like the majority of Americans, or like will never use Twitter, not a social media person, I am confident that I can help help you see why this is a a big deal for all of us, not just folks who are on Twitter. Because I do think that a lot of the reporting on this is like, oh, well, this matters because it's Twitter and everybody uses Twitter. Not so, right? Like when you compare Twitter to other social media platforms like Facebook 
Only a small amount of Americans use or are on Twitter actively, and even less Americans actually tweet and participate there. So we're talking about a small amount of folks. However, the reason why this actually like kind of matters is because the people who are active on Twitter are kind of like, I guess you could sort of call them like the tastemakers, right? Like journalists, researchers, activists, organizers, uh, people who are really able to shape conversation and shape our public discourse and sort of have an influence on what becomes part of our public kind of conversation, right? And so, Samantha, exactly like what you were saying, when people need quick, up-to-date, hopefully somewhat reliable information, they're not going to Instagram, they're not going to Tumblr, they're not going to Snapchat or TikTok, they're going to Twitter. You know, there's a reason why when there's a, you know, mass shooting on a campus, people can follow updates quickly on Twitter. And so, Twitter is not just this place where public discourse is shaped. Uh, It is also a place where you just go to get easy, quick access to hopefully reliable information about stuff happening near you. And so you can sort of get a sense of why this is a platform where these kind of power struggles happen, right? Like, it's not surprising that, like, a person like Donald Trump, Twitter was his platform du jour because you can have such outsized influence in getting a message out there quickly and effectively. And I just don't think that we have another social media platform that mimics that so effectively. Like, Facebook moves a little bit slower, even though more people are there. Instagram, the timeline moves in such an algorithmic way that you don't need, it's like, if I posted something that was really important, it's not even a guarantee that everybody who follows me would see it, right? And so Twitter is such a fast-moving platform, and I think it's one of the reasons why we're seeing it spring up as a, a battleground in this like highly polarized kind of culture war. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Can I rant for a sec? Please. 
pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. I'm really glad that you're here to make this case because uh, we recently, it was recently Thanksgiving and I went home and um, a lot of people were kind of, you know, laughing about uh, Elon Musk and Twitter. And there are definitely some funny aspects of it, but they were all like, well, I hate Twitter, so I'm not sad to see it go. And I was like, well, I have a lot of problems with Twitter too, but the, it's important. It does matter. And it is a shame like that we're seeing this happen. And there have been things examples of stuff that took off on Twitter and then fundamentally changed our public discourse, whether you use it or not. Totally, right? And so this is this is the drum I will always beat. Even if you are not someone who is actively using Twitter, you have felt the cultural impact of movements and conversations that started on Twitter. You know, if you think about um, the way that people who traditionally have not necessarily had a lot of access to power and influence they can use Twitter to build up that power and that voice and that influence. I could give you a million different examples of concrete changes that we're all aware of and probably all felt directly that started on Twitter. You know, uh, it's not surprising to me that Twitter has been used as this way to really hold power structures accountable. When Tarana Burke started the Me Too movement, you know, she had this, this movement that she had started for black and brown women and girls who were survivors of sexual violence. And when actor Alyssa Milano tweeted about it on Twitter using the hashtag MeToo, that's when it really took off, right? And so you see the, the power that, you know, generating conversations on the platform can have. If not for Twitter, I don't know that we would have the MeToo movement the way, that it, the way that it was. I don't know that, you know, all of these different powerful abusers would be eventually held to account and that we would be having a national conversation about things like gender and sexual violence. You know, um, another great example is um, a friend of mine, April Rain, she tweeted about how white the Oscars nominees were and tweeted, Oscars so white. It completely took off. People were tweeting things like, Oscars so white, it touches my hair without asking. Oscars so white, it, you know, da 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 And because of that conversation, it fundamentally changed how the Oscars were that year. Uh, Spike Lee uh, won an Oscar, and he he said that he doesn't think it would ever have happened without that campaign, which started as a tweet, a hashtag on Twitter. Look at the way that it was instrumental during Arab Spring, right? And so, like, there are so many ways and times where, particularly outside of the U.S., Twitter has been used to document you know, abuse of power and hold that power to account. And I think it's even if you're not on Twitter, you have probably felt or seen some kind the impact of some kind of movement that was started on Twitter. You know, and as you're talking about these movements, which are so huge, I had to go back to the original idea of like, our lingo changed completely with what is now the hashtag as well, because that actually originated in 2007, according to one of the resources that I looked at it, on Twitter. Like, it literally changed how we looked at so much of our conversations online. Um, it brought up a way for us to pass messages and bring up big issues with what I would have known as 
pound sign, which <laughs> this didn't, the the zillennials don't know what that is, and that's fine. I'm fine with it. I'm okay with it. Um, but like that in itself has begun a new conversation. The zeitgeist in itself had changed because of things like that on Twitter, and it's such a big, significant thing that we don't often think about in knowing that before 2007, that didn't exist, and what a powerful tool it is on across all social media. Oh my God, Sam, this is my your your main. I will keep my comments as brief as I can. This is like (laughs) my favorite topic. The way that things that originated on different social media platforms, in this case, Twitter, have changed, fundamentally changed the way that we communicate digitally is fascinating to me. I remember when hashtags were first rolled out and... Previously, there wasn't really an easy way to quickly figure out what everybody was saying on on a particular topic. And I still remember I was working as a social media manager at the time when the conversation was like, oh, well, should we use hashtags on Facebook? Like, does it work that way? And, you know, people still use hashtags. If you go to TikTok, like one of the biggest, fastest growing platforms out there, when you scroll down to the bottom of a TikTok, people tend to include hashtags. And so it's interesting how this mode of, this particular mode of digital communication did not just stay on Twitter, how it really shaped other platforms as well. And I think has become a pivotal way in terms of like how we just think about the way that discourse works online. I think before the hashtag, we didn't think about it as like, I should be able to pull up a hashtag and get a a sense of like the diversity of thought and conversation on any one topic. And now that is kind of integral to the way that we understand communication online. This is something I could nerd out on for hours. It's Probably not interesting to anybody but me, but I find it fascinating. I found it fascinating. (laughs) To be fair, again, I was late in coming to social media. I still am late in understanding social media to a certain extent. So when I first started, I was like, what are these hashtags? I'm just going to write sentences on there. It made no sense. But I'm like, that makes it blue. Like, you can click on it. I'm going to do it, (laughs) which is a whole different conversation itself. I'm like, look, technology, which is, again, how I react to most things. But going back to where we started, because uh, finding something that's coming to this point, which seems apocalyptic for a social media brand, but one of the oldest one that has been out there that still like stood the test of time outside of Facebook, it's interesting to see what is happening because it does feel like we have lived this extension of a life of a creation of something completely different. So with all that, how did we get here? Where, how did this happen? Great question. So this is something, again, that I wish I saw more of in the reporting. People kind of gloss over it. And I think it's actually a really big part of the story, and it's important to not just gloss over it, which is that, you know, Musk's decision to, to buy Twitter, per his own statements, was rooted in transphobia. Um, he'd been talking about buying Twitter for a while, and in 2018, Twitter added intentionally misgendering people to their list of prohibited behavior on the platform. Uh, so you can't, like, as a means of, of trying to harm someone, you cannot misgender them. So in uh, the right wing, I guess you'll call it, like, a parody site. Even that doesn't seem quite correct, uh, but we'll call it a parody website for the sake of conversation, uh, the Babylon Bee they violated this rule when they tweeted a transphobic joke, in scare quotes, um, that Dr. Rachel Levine, who is the first openly trans four-star officer in the military and currently the Assistant Secretary for Health in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, they made a, a crack on Twitter that she had been named, quote, man of the year, right? And so a lot of the report, first of all, it's wild to me how, like, 
that that level of humor has not evolved since that movie, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Like, we're still in 1992. Like, oh my God, like, like get a new joke, people. It is, it is so tired. But a lot of people reported that the Babylon Bee was banned from Twitter for this, for this tweet, but that technically is not correct. Twitter said that the Babylon Bee could have their account back in 12 hours, but that that countdown could not start until they deleted that particular tweet. They refused to delete that tweet, so they were unable to tweet. So they weren't technically banned. They kind of decided, like, we are not, we are going to die on this hill of this tweet, and if we can't tweet, that's fine. So at this time, Musk was already the biggest shareholder of Twitter, and he had been invited to join its board of directors. Um, in April, Elon offered to buy Twitter, and he said that it was specifically that Babylon B situation that prompted him to do so. That, like, that was the final straw watching the Babylon B not be able to tweet because they refused to delete this joke. Uh, the Babylon Bee confirmed this to the Washington Times, saying, we have had some communication with Musk. Uh, he wanted to confirm that we had, in fact, been suspended from Twitter. He reached out to us before he publicly asked his followers if they think Twitter rigorously adheres to the principle of free expression. He even mused on that call that he might need to buy Twitter. So it's to me, it's like pretty disappointing and also very important that Elon Musk's you know, tenure at Twitter really starts with his desire to protect transphobic jokes, in scare quotes, as protected speech and free speech on the platform. I think that's terribly disappointing, and I think it's related to the ways that we're seeing him, you know, at the rain at Twitter right now. That's so disappointing because, from what I do understand, he does have a trans child, and in, like, Obviously, the relationship is not good. They disowned uh, Musk as their our parental figure. But it seems like a, just an attack on them. If I were if I were them, I would think this as well. But it's just so disappointing to know that you could really care so little of your own child that you're willing to go into forty four billion dollars in debt to go for this. Yes, it is. I mean, the this is a, a weird aside, but like. I actually spend a lot of time thinking about Elon Musk's, like, personal motivations. I obviously don't know Elon Musk, so I can't, like, like it all, it's all speculation, but I do think there's something about it. Like, I can't imagine having a trans child and going out of my way and spending a lot of money to protect, and like, transphobic rhetoric. I, I, I cannot imagine it. It's difficult for me to put myself in that position, I guess I'll say. I also think that it really reflects the ways that particularly trans people have unfortunately kind of become this like, like just the existence of trans people trying to live their lives has become this like flashpoint. On the one hand, it is surprising to me that he would double down on this having a trans child. On the other hand, I do see the ways that just like the existence of trans people trying to live their lives has become this incredibly like politicized hot button issue. It certainly should not be. But on the other hand, it's not terribly surprising to me that his bid at Twitter starts with that transphobia, that that's where it, that that's where it begins. Right. It makes me want to have him fail, but that's <laughs> yeah. just me. But, you know, with that, it's kind of odd that he also continues to talk about free speech. I think it's really, really almost ironic. He talks about free speech, and several of the people that I've seen banned are the people that said something about him. Not necessarily either anything uh, completely offhand. It was just like, hey, he did this, and this is a bad thing. And he's like, banned them. Exactly. Okay, so let's get into this, because Elon Musk, he has called himself a 
free speech absolutist. He says in a TED Talk, like, free speech is the ability for someone you don't like to say something you don't like, right? And so you might be thinking, oh, well, he would probably be working to foster a climate of open discourse and discussion at Twitter now that he's in charge. But you might, you would, you would be wrong if you thought that, right? Because that's not what, the, what, not what the vibe has been so far. And so first of all, I have to say, like, obviously, when we talk about free speech, really what we are talking about is whether governments can punish people or prevent people um, from saying what they want to say, right? And so at, the conversation around free speech has gotten so muddled about like, oh, well, this is censorship. It's like, oh, well, not really. But, and there are absolutely free speech issues happening in the United States right now. Like when you look at like anti-CRT bills or like don't say gay legislation, like we are in a, a climate where free expression is under attack specifically from government. So like, that needs to be clear. Um, but for the sake of conversation, let's talk about free speech as sort of generally fostering a climate of open discourse and debate. If we use that definition of, of free speech, you might be thinking like, has Elon Musk worked to create that kind of environment since taking over? Also, no, he has not done that. Uh, <laughs> First, he got started by overseeing a mass exodus of staff at Twitter. Um, some employees resigned, which I totally get. Like, I would have I would have been out the door. Honestly, there's not a lot of jobs that if I was offered three months' pay to not do it, that I would keep doing it. It's not, it's not, I can't, it's not a lot of jobs where that would be the case for me. So I would totally have been on the resignation train. Um, so I totally get that. And some workers were fired. And specifically, they were fired for things that they said about Elon Musk. Engineer Eric Fraunhofer was fired very publicly for going against Musk, and it happened right on Twitter. Uh, Eric worked on Twitter's apps for Android, and after Musk tweeted that Twitter for Android had been really slow, the engineer retweeted Musk saying that Musk, his, his, under, his technical understanding of Twitter's app was wrong, which I can kind of buy because Elon Musk is famously not an engineer. Uh, so perhaps might not totally know what he's talking about when talking to an actual engineer who works on the thing that he is criticizing. Uh, and so <laughs> Musk replied and asked this engineer to elaborate uh, before writing, Twitter is super slow on Android. What have you done to fix that? They kind of go back and forth. And then somebody else comes in and is like, hey, engineer, why didn't you raise these issues privately with your boss? And the engineer replies, Maybe he should ask questions privately. Maybe use Slack or email. Elon then weighs in and says, oh, that engineer has been fired. So I find this like very interesting because a lot of people said like, oh, if you publicly disagree with your boss, you know, you can like pretty much anywhere, you would probably be fired. And I guess that's a, like a, a fair point. Like I, 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 Like in most workplaces, you can't like get on Twitter and call out your boss. Totally get that. But I think the larger point is like, it seems directly at odds with somebody who has called himself a free speech absolutist. And I also think that that engineer has a really good point. Like, why is it that Elon, as a as the boss, is allowed to publicly misrepresent his work on Twitter and that the staffer, he is the one who has to stay quiet and only set the record straight uh, like in private. Like if Elon Musk, like Elon Musk made it public by tweeting about it. Why is it that when his boss publicly, I think, craps on his work, he is not able to publicly reply. I, I kind of totally get why he did this, even if for most people they might think like, oh, that's clearly a fireable offense. Yes. Yes, agreed. And also, there's been a lot of uh, stories that, like, even privately, <laughs> that might not have protected him. Exactly. So even if this engineer had brought it up privately via Slack or email, 
he probably, I think, probably still would have been fired because it's not just staff who have publicly gone against Musk who have been terminated. ABC reported that dozens of other staffers said that they were fired for raising criticisms on internal Slack messages or email. And that kind of tracks with the kind of climate that Musk has run at his other companies. I don't know how he's been able to dub himself as a free speech warrior because that the record of his of the, the climate at his other organizations just does not reflect that. Like at SpaceX, for instance, former staff filed an unfair labor practice charge with the National Labor Relations Board saying that they were retaliated against for writing and organizing a letter that was critical of the company when Musk had been accused of sexual harassment. And so they, they, they wrote this letter saying Elon Musk's behavior, the sexual harassment, his like crass jokes on Twitter is making us look bad and it needs to stop. And they, they say, and they, they went to the, NLRB saying this, that they were unfairly retaliated against for that. And so, I don't know, I have a hard time believing that Elon Musk is this like champion for free speech when that those are the kinds of climates that he has fostered at his organizations. There's so much to all of that, including the fact when we often hear people complaining about free speech, especially today, as you were talking about like the anti-CRT stuff, as well as so many other things don't say gay bills, um, that it seems very much coming from the conservative side because they feel like since they think they don't have the same privileges they did two years ago, that they are now being imposed on and therefore no longer having free speech. And we also know that that in Tesla, there was a lawsuit uh, where many black employees talked about the racism within that company, including him including being called the N-word and all of that. And I'm thinking that's what he's talking about when there's limiting free speech. Like, okay, white people, you are now allowed to say that here because that's free speech and not real, not, not in, like crediting the fact that that's, you know, like it's racist. That's not an issue of free speech. That's about racism. But that's what I'm seeing as a pattern, as well as the fact that the people who have been defending Musk, like the dude who's like, hey, dude, don't be saying this to your boss are absolutely to the level of, like, how close in ratio are we to the incel link here? Ooh, you... Oh, I have I so much to, to say about that, this. I? <laughs> I have so much to say about this. So, one, I hadn't really thought about this before, but you really put... You really laid this out nicely. I do think that the way that people talk about content moderation on a platform like Twitter does kind of connect to conversations about, like, oh... Because I can't say what I used to be able to say 20 years ago without repercussions, therefore, I am being censored. Therefore, the only way to protect free speech is to allow specifically, like, racist or transphobic content on these platforms. Like, I, def- I hadn't really thought about it in, in that direct of a line, but I think that you're absolutely on to something that the reason why so many people, when they talk about, like, free speech, free speech— they're not talking about the free speech rights of like, you know, Palestinian activists or, you know, sex workers or any of the other marginalized people who we know actually are the recipients of crackdowns on their speech. They're talking about the right to say the N-word. And I, I to, to your point about Tesla, I would implore folks to read up on this because some of the allegations are, it's not, it's not just like, oh, this person made off-color jokes. The allegations, some of which are against Musk himself and the kind of climate that he ran, are sickening, right? Like, one of them that sticks in my mind is that at the Tesla factory, one of the lawsuits alleges that when Elon Musk would come do a tour of the, of the factories, that staffers knew 
that Elon Musk had a problem with seeing black staffers on the floor. And so when he, on days when he was coming, they would have the black staffers like essentially hide because that they knew that like it would be a, a better walkthrough for Musk if Musk did not see black and brown faces on his floor. So like, it's not just like, oh, someone made a joke I didn't like. That would be bad enough. It, it's some, some of the allegations are really deep and really, I think, reflect a, a, a real... Just a deeply f-ed culture. And it's so interesting because I read this, and I, I can't verify if this is a, an accurate thing or not, but I read this um, thing where someone was like, oh, I used to work at, at SpaceX. And everybody knew that part of the deal when you worked for Elon Musk was so much management went into managing Elon Musk specifically. And so they would, they would have all of these like, different window dressing so that when Elon Musk was was there, he could feel certain kinds of ways. And so they would have, like he talked about how they would have a computer run code in a way that looks like the Matrix so that Elon Musk, who is famously not an engineer, would think that really cool, super special tech stuff was happening, even though it was just farce, right? And so I, I think some of, the, some of the allegations coming out of other Elon Musk-run companies are so deeply troubling. And I think that these are companies that were that were that have an infrastructure to manage these these particular ways that Musk has. Twitter is not a company that has that. And so it's it's interesting to think like, what will the vibe at Twitter be like when so much of the staff has been gutted and it's not a company that has been built to manage Elon Musk's quirks? Yeah, that's, I've heard that too. And that's so sad that that's like people's mental energy is... We gotta keep this guy calm, and here's how we'll do it. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. 
explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think um, as, as we're discussing, he and a lot of people on the right, very conservative people, would have you believe that uh, this sort of hard right free speech, in quotes, like they're being policed more. They're getting more, they're being more censored. Uh, they are very much the victims in this conversation. But that isn't the case, is it? It is not the case. And this is something that I think really points to the kind of ship that Musk is going to be running at Twitter, is that he gets on Twitter and repeats this thoroughly debunked claim that Twitter has been, quote, censoring the right more than the left. And there is an entire body of research debunking this. Like, I could do a whole episode digging into some of the studies that have come out about this. It's fascinating to me, but I'll just run through a couple. So researchers from MIT, Yale, and the University of Exeter published a study that found that while right-leaning accounts are banned more frequently, it is not because of anti-right-wing bias, but rather, as the researchers put it, they found that users' misinformation sharing was as predictive of suspension, as was their political orientation. Thus, the observation that Republicans were more likely to be suspended than Democrats provides no support for the claim that Twitter showed political bias in its suspension practices. Instead, the observed asymmetry could be explained entirely by the tendency of Republicans to share more misinformation. And so basically, this idea that, like, when they were looking at misinformation and who was banned more for, for, for spreading it, Republicans or right-leaning accounts were banned more, but because those were the accounts that were more likely to be spreading misinformation in the first place. Um, and this is actually backed up by Twitter's own in-house research team. In the pre-Musk days, after Trump was banned on Twitter, um, the Twitter internal team was facing a lot of criticism that they were censoring the right. So they put together a team to look into it. And the internal research team at Twitter found that folks on the right are actually amplified on Twitter more often globally. Uh, from the report, our results reveal a remarkably consistent trend. In six out of the seven countries studied, the mainstream political right enjoys higher algorithmic amplification than the mainstream political left. Um, you can read this report on their website. It's 27 pages long. Um, and so this idea that people on the right have been censored by Twitter or, or are, you know, getting a raw deal, it just is just not borne out by the facts or the or the you know the research that's been done. And I also think that it really speaks to this like wider misconception about social media more generally, that there is no real body of academic study or academic thought with regards to social media, and that everything that we know about it is an either anecdotal or like unknowable. So people can just say whatever and be like, oh yeah, you know how people on the right are censored on social media platforms and not really have it challenged. And so I think that it, it really speaks to this, I don't know, I think it's an, a, a holdover from a time when people just saw social media as the internet and not the real world, and thus it was not really worthy of serious examination. But there's entire 
schools of research and bodies of evidence about social media platforms. And all of them say the same thing, that people on the right are not being censored or cracked down on or, or anything like that. And that if anybody tells you that they are, maybe that's their anecdote. Maybe they feel that way. Maybe that's their anecdotal evidence, but they're not. And also, like, even beyond Twitter, people say the same thing about Facebook, when in reality, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was personally intervening to keep people like Alex Jones on the platform and personally meeting with right-wing leaders. And so it's not going both ways. And so, yeah, I think that Musk repeating this claim really shows how easy it is to, like, stoke this victim complex. Like, I, like I, of course I am the one being victimized here. What else could be happening? I'm, I'm not excited about what's coming up because there's conversations about how Facebook is prepping for the next election, presidential election, and they are way too excited for the return of Donald Trump, and I hate things. <laughs> but, you know, I find it interesting, too, because even with the COVID misinformation, it took— forever for them to even recognize the misinformation and even talked about, okay, how are we going to do that without banning everybody? Because they didn't want to. And so first they put the little warning things to all of it. And you're like, it took a lot for a person to be banned. It took a lot to even have any of that warning to be put on there. Because we went through a full year, I feel like, of so much misinformation, so many bad advices about how you can treat yourself to get rid of COVID. It was I feel like an ongoing battle, and it still kind of is. And it's kind of ironic that they were like, they absolutely hate us when they were so much uh, fight to be put up from the people, especially scientists, to be like, can you please control this? Because this is really bad for her, uh, the health of our nation. Totally. And what's so interesting about that is that something that people say a lot, like well-meaning people will say a lot, is like, you remember in the early days of COVID, we didn't know about masks. Like it was like, we were getting Mm -hmm. a lot of, like for a while it was like, oh, only medical professionals need them or only this. And so like, and then eventually it was like, oh, it's masks, we all need masks. People will, I think kind of understandably, conflate medical professionals getting more familiar with how the virus worked and all of that, which is confusing, right? Like, it's like having one day having someone be like, oh, you don't need to wear a mask. And the next day having them be like, oh, wear a mask. Like, I can understand why people are confused and why that looks like, you know, like, oh, so why is that? Why is that not misinformation, you know? And it's like, there's a difference between medical professionals, you know, getting more up to date on a novel virus and people who are spreading clearly provably false information. And I think that unfortunately with COVID, because it was like a new virus, it created a climate that really made it easy to conflate those things. And so I think it made it easy to not challenge provable, demonstrable lies about COVID and lies about COVID that were intentional. So like disinformation spread by with malicious intent by bad actors. I think that the climate of having a novel virus where people were still getting up to date on what was going on with it made it easy to not crack down on it. And I, I, I think it's just like a reality of the way that inaccurate information on social media works is that there's always going to be that grain of truth where it's like, oh, well, why is this not misinformation? And I can understand why people raise that, but I think it like did us a real disservice to cracking down on things that we know are just provably incorrect statements. Does that, does that make sense? I feel like I'm kind of rambling, but yeah. hopefully y'all know no. what I mean. I mean, that virus, we didn't know. No one knew. No one knew where it came from, what to do, how to handle it. And I got, like, that definitely was. We definitely were told, don't wear masks. Please don't buy these masks. We're running out. That's a whole different conversation. But to, like, everybody wear a damn mask. Please, for the love of 
all things. And then having to be like, hey, they learn new things because they're researching new things. And then also, like, political stuff. But, like, yeah, that makes perfect sense that things would change. And, of course, the naysayers would be like, do you remember this? They're lying because they didn't say this the first time around. It's like, this is what it means to learn and to research and to grow. But there was a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I makes me really sad about what's happening to Twitter, as we were talking about at the beginning, because um, I, there was a tweet that went viral a couple of weeks ago from a, a reporter that was like, you know, World War III could be breaking out, and here I am, not sure what is reality on Twitter anymore, because it is such a big, a big source for news, and that whole thing with COVID, it did get really messy, and it was an example of an interesting and kind of like terrifying example, I guess, of like how do how does this platform manage this information, perhaps misinformation or disinformation, um, when you know the scientists are researching and it is changing. And I think um, because it gets so a lot of it gets convoluted and there's so many like bad faith conversations that can happen on platforms like that. Um, that it, it, it is, it's just like one of the, it's an interesting case study to see how Twitter kind of did deal with that and how long it took. And I think that's another thing that's really upsetting about this is, as you alluded to, Samantha, it felt like we were making progress and it was so hard fought. <laughs> and now we're seeing like a a reversal of all of these things that were, it felt like, oh, this is a step forward. It's going to be a platform where a lot of this misinformation, it won't be as prevalent. It will still be there, but not as prevalent. But it's getting reversed. It's upsetting. I mean, I, not to get too personal, but like in my day job, I do a lot of work trying to make platforms safer. And, you know, I've met with the team at Twitter many times. I don't know who's still there, but like to advise them to be like, oh, here, like, here are steps that you could take to make the platform more hospitable for marginalized people, women, people of color, whatever. And so it does feel like a lot of the work that I have done personally, like personally done in the last few years is now being erased. So like, it's a little, it's a little bit like, oh, well, glad I spent the last three years on this. But Musk reinstated a bunch of previously suspended or banned accounts that had been kicked off the platform for things like spreading COVID misinformation or harassment. And he signaled that he's planning on doing more of that in the following week. So some of the folks who have been welcomed back to the platform include the Babylon Bee, who you were talking about earlier, Jordan Peterson, uh, who was banned after repeatedly deadnaming the actor Elliot Page um, and misgendering Elliot Page, Kanye West, whose account was locked after numerous anti-Semitic comments, uh, Andrew Tate, who is, if you don't know who he is, he's like a like an I don't even know what you would call him, like a men's rights kind of misogynistic influencer slash coach. Um, he, Andrew Tate was banned from pretty much all platforms for saying things like women need to be held accountable if they are raped. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene's personal account, uh, not her official account, uh, was banned for spreading COVID misinformation. And of course, Donald Trump. Uh, you may recall that Donald Trump was banned uh, after using Twitter to foment insurrection, which is such a weird thing to say. Since having his account reinstated, Trump has actually not tweeted, and he has signaled uh, that he is perhaps not going to be returning to Twitter, even though he can, he has his, his account back, um, saying instead that he's going to stay on his own social media platform that he owns called Truth Social. Um, I've heard that there might be some kind of like contractual obligation there that Trump might be contractually obligated 
to only tweet on Truth Social, but I actually don't know the ins and outs of that, so I can't really speak to it personally. But um, so all these people who are who had to leave the platform for things like I, I would say that are like fairly serious offenses. Listen, nobody is permanently suspended from Twitter for a one-time offense unless it is something egregious, right? And so I can I can speak from personal experience. Marjorie Taylor Greene had numerous warnings, and this was like a consistent thing with her, right? Kanye West is the same. It doesn't just come out of the blue unless you're doing something really egregious. And so these are the people that Elon Musk is going to be welcoming back. And he says that he's declaring amnesty next week for banned accounts. Um, But at the same time, he is also cracking down on accounts that are, you know, associated with like lefty politics as well. So for instance, Chad Loader, the founder of the cybersecurity specialty company called Habituate, um, his account was banned from the site after he used Twitter on November 23rd to warn users about an alleged data breach on Twitter. Um, Loader is known for like researching and reporting on right-wing extremism, including unmasking a Proud Boy member who attacked a police officer during the insurrection. Um, and that report was actually cited by the Department of Justice. So like a fairly, you know, known person who writes about things like cybersecurity and and how to be safe on Twitter and right-wing extremism was one of the first accounts banned uh, while Musk was talking about this amnesty and, you know, having Twitter be this place for free speech. Um, Interestingly enough, when Sam Harris asked Elon Musk about bringing back Alex Jones, who you might remember made up egregious lies about babies who died in Sandy Hook and the parents who grieved them, you know, said that they were paid actors and all of that, Elon Musk tweeted, my firstborn child died in my arms. I felt his last heartbeat. I have no mercy for anyone who would use the deaths of children for gain, politics, or fame. And I actually think that that was one of the more transparent, honest statements from Musk about how he sees his role in moderation, right? Like, he can personally identify with the pain of losing a child because Elon Musk, unfortunately, has lost a child. And so it allows him to have a sense of how painful it would be to be a grieving parent, grieving that loss, and then also be harassed and called a liar on top of it. And so he's going to make those moderation decisions based on that lived experience. It's interesting because I think it totally puts to rest that Elon Musk is like a free speech absolutist because it reveals what's pretty obvious that these decisions are just made up by him based on like what he does or doesn't like, which fine. But I also think that like, because he can personally identify with losing a child, he is going to moderate from that lived personal experience. But what about experiences that Elon Musk has not personally had, right? So like the experience of somebody like Elliot Page or somebody like Dr. Rachel Levine, who was just a trans person trying to live their life, or the experience of being like a woman of color on a platform like Twitter, who we know are more harassed than than our counterparts, right? Or what about being a person with disabilities who relies on the platform to build community, right? Like, because Elon Musk has no personal lived experience with those marginalized identities, it seems like he really can't see those perspectives as, as real as his own perspective. And it really, it reminds me so much of this, like, classic George Carlin joke that I've gotten so much mileage out of in my life. Have you ever noticed that other people's stuff is and your is stuff, right? Like he can only see like his lived experience as real and everybody else's is just theoretical or trivial or doesn't really matter. And I don't think that platforms like Twitter should be moderated based on a white billionaire what, what is within the scope of his personal lived experience? Because 
There's so many lived experiences out there that he has no idea of. I mean, not everybody gets the experience having people on your staff to make you feel comfortable, including, like, (laughs) avoiding the color orange, I guess. Um, (laughs) That's a whole different level of experience. And, you know, not to... Uh, delegate the fact that he did lose a child and that was heartful. Like, his wife, ex-wife, came back and was like, dude, you didn't hold that child. I held that child. I held that child. You were a jerk through this entire process. And now, who's using the death of a child for publicity? That's interesting. I mean, I'm glad he's, he's acknowledging that's a bad thing. So... I guess half a point for that. But it's quite interesting that even that he couldn't be truly honest about and he couldn't actually see beyond his own, like, I'm going to make myself look really big by doing this when in actuality, again, his motive in buying this is hurtful for one child and then to lie about that specific thing against the wife who apparently had a lot of issues with Elon Musk in general and to literally dismiss her experiences. It's, there's so many things to this man that I'm just like, what is wrong with you? Other than you are a narcissistic sociopath, and I don't know what else to say, except for, oh my God, you're ruining this. Totally. So if, if anybody out there, like, if you want to read a heartbreaking account of a Ugh. divorce where you're like, that man is awful, look into, the, look into <sighs> Elon Musk's divorce. I read it. It, it like, haunts me. The things that were alleged that happened in that divorce haunts me. Um, mm. So, yes. Yes to all of that. And I think, like, it, the, the kind of person who, like, requires their staffers to do so much labor and energy to have the workplace be to their liking in, this, in these, like, really particular ways is the kind of person who sees themselves as the main character of life and doesn't even really question that. Like, I think that's really what's going on here. I think that people like Elon Musk, you know, I don't know him. This is just my opinion. I think it's hard for them to see other people's perspectives as real. And so the kind of person who requires staffers to go around making computers look super cool and sciencey so that he, you know, gets warm fuzzies and, and doesn't even see that that is what's, go, is what's happening. It isn't even able to see that labor. So he just thinks like, wow, my company is so great. And he doesn't see the like 20 frustrated staffers. Like I've been the staffer who has to go out of my way and do a lot of emotional labor to accommodate a person in power who will never even see that labor, doesn't even know that labor has happened. And it's really hard. And it speaks to this perspective of really not being able to see other people. Everybody else is just a side character to your main character, I guess, is is how I'll put it. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You always do such a, an excellent job of pointing this out, Bridget, but uh, people forget sometimes that, you know, technology is not without bias because somebody programmed it, somebody's moderating it. So I think with Elon Musk, without this team of people, with all of these changes um, and his kind of like declaration that, oh, well, I'm going to make it somehow less biased. Like that's just false. That's just (laughs) such, such a lie. And um I know we've been talking about this throughout, but what for, you know, everybody who's listening, it's like, oh, well, you know, I don't really use Twitter. I always kind of didn't like it or whatever. What what do we stand to lose? Why does this matter? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked because you might be thinking, okay, I get it, but why do I care? I don't work at Twitter. I'll never work at Twitter. I don't use it. Why do I care? Well, first is the most basic, you know, just Twitter as a place to get quick information. Um, like we were talking about earlier, you know, it is fu- functioned as this, in this way for a long time. You know, when Joe Biden needed to announce the specifics of like student loan debt relief, he didn't go to Reddit or Tumblr or Instagram. Twitter is how you get information out quickly. And so like when there's an emergency, Twitter is how you get information out about it. Like I have a friend who works for the State Department. It's Twitter that is being used right now to get important information out to Americans who are traveling to the World Cup, for instance, right? And so if the platform is going to be full of bots and hate speech and accounts impersonating other people and bad actors, that whole thing breaks down. Like, think about it. If there was an emergency in your neighborhood right now and you wanted up-to-date, real-time information about it, we don't really have a place to really get that other than Twitter. And like, I think it really goes to show that we need better public interest communications platforms. But like, if you like... When there's been emergencies in my neighborhood, I'm, I'm looking at Twitter to see who is talking about it and, and what is developing, you know, quickly. And so that's just the most, like, basic reason why folks should care. But it's also more than that. You know, earlier I was talking about the massive influence that Twitter has and sort of how it's been used to drive progress. 
I could give you so many examples of the way that Twitter has been used to push conversations forward to get us someplace better. You know, if not for Twitter, we wouldn't have movements like Me Too, you know, which was not just something happening on Twitter. It shifted our entire culture and our entire, you know, the the progress of our culture, I would say. For instance, y'all have probably heard of Shanquilla Robinson, who was a 25-year-old Black woman from North Carolina who traveled to Mexico on vacation with a group of people and ended up dead. The people that she traveled with tried to say that it was alcohol poisoning, but later a video emerged of one of them getting into a pretty brutal physical altercation with her. Now there's actual movement in the case, and her mother says that it's because of Black Twitter. She says that if, if not for Black folks tweeting about it, raising the alarm about it, generating awareness about it. She said, she said that she was having a really hard time getting any kind of national attention on the story of her daughter's death. And so she actually says it was Twitter that did that. And so in that case, this rapper, Amina Kane, shared Shanquilla's photo on Twitter on November 9th. Her message went viral. It got almost 20,000 retweets and then later spread to other social media platforms, and got so much more attention to her death. And um, Sherry Williams, who is a professor of race, media, and communication at American University, she put it really well in this interview with NBC News. She says, Black folks know that mainstream news media has a history of completely ignoring our stories, so we've been using these tools to amplify our stories ourselves, and it works. We see this cycle of mainstream news media basically following the chatter on Black social media, like Twitter. And so it really goes to show the real-world impact that platforms like Twitter can have. Twitter was not perfect. It is not perfect. I have had my issues with it. But we lose so much if we don't have platforms like Twitter. Marginalized communities lose so much. And our ability to push that culture forward and have those conversations that get us someplace better, we there is so much at stake if we do not have social media and digital communications platforms where those kind of conversations can happen. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I totally agree. And I think that that's one thing that kind of gives me anxiety is when I, when I hear people like, well, I didn't like Twitter. I'm like, but that can be a very privileged thing to just be like, oh, it goes away. Because there are people in other countries that use it to organize and to communicate. Like, it's a very powerful tool, especially if you're kind of isolated and maybe you don't have a lot of people in your community or like where you grew up to talk to, to share ideas with, like, it's important. <laughs> it's really, really important. Um, so I think I, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you brought this today. I'm glad that you brought these points because I just feel like there is so much at stake and a lot of it's getting kind of lost in the chaos of like what's happening with Twitter and why it matters is getting lost in all this chaos. So thank you, as always, Bridget. Oh, of course. And if folks listening, like, if you have questions about Twitter alternatives, like, let's chat. Like, I have I'm, questions. I'm, Where yeah, should we I, go? So that's a, that's a great question. I <laughs> have, I guess I, I, the platforms that I see people going to are Hive, and yeah. Mastodon. Um, I'm still trying to figure them all out. They all have their issues, but yeah, people have been talking about moving to Hive, Mastodon, Post. All of these different platforms all have their issues. Like there's been big conversations about the funding structure and the moderation structure. So I will be trying them all out myself and I'll, I'm happy to report back and let y'all know like what worked, what didn't work, what's a flop, what's a bop. <laughs> I'll let <laughs> yes. y'all know, TBD. 
That's amazing. Yes, please. Yeah, please let us know. It's because like Mastodon seems super confusing and very specific. Hive may not be ready for the mass movement is what I'm reading. Um, but, and then also I know Discord is a thing, which I've been told that we should have one. So Bridget, let's have, Annie, let's have a Discord for us. Yes. Smithy plus Bridget. And then having like questionnaires with the people and then deciding where to go. Maybe. Oh my gosh. I love this. <laughs> yes. So I actually, even before Twitter was about my Musk, I've always loved Discord. Uh, okay. It's it's super fun. Um, yeah, let's have a Discord channel. We can like hash all this out. Let's do oh it. Oh my gosh. Yes, let us Get do online, it. y'all. Is that, a, is that a saying? Is that a saying? No. Did I do this right? <laughs> let's, make, let's, let's make it a saying. Get online, y'all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. <laughs> I'm fine. Wow. I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm fine. We are the coolest, <laughs> obviously. This reminds me of the Britney Spears interview where she's like, everyone's talking about the emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's hey, about I'll right. I'll take it. Like Britney Spears. That's me. Yes, yes. Um, well, Bridget, the actual coolest. Where yes. can the listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC. You can find me I still have a Twitter account, but tweeting a lot less these days at Bridget Marie. You can listen to me on my podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, and my new limited series with Cool Zone Media called Internet Hate Machine, where we dive into all the ways that the internet can be a not-so-fun place for women and people of color. Yes, super important to this conversation. And definitely, listeners, go check it out if you haven't already. Um, Thank you again, Bridget, for being here. Always a delight. And... Thank you, listeners, for listening. If you would like to contact us, you can. Our email is stephanieandmomstuff at iHeartMedia. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You's production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. Kings Island is now open on weekends. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.